welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Rob Wolford. Hello. Hi, how are we doing, Stuart? We're doing very well. We're doing very well. Now, we've come to talk about your movie, The Crusaders, 357, Ex- Experiment in Evil, which has uh, recently landed on uh, Amazon Prime in the UK. I mean, is that has that arrived everywhere on Amazon Prime? Yeah, it's definitely on Amazon Prime in the UK. For sure. No, I've seen it, so that's definitely happened. Um, so you wrote and directed this movie. So without further ado, before we go into any detail, do you want to give people a brief synopsis as to what the crusade is all about? It is the, um, it's the it's story of about a battered housewife who leaves her husband to become a superhero. And she joins a team of costume crime fighters. And when she does, she begins to realize there's something very wrong with the leader of the team. And there's a lot of similarities. It's she's left one abusive relationship in a sense and has gotten into another. And it's all about her journey to be her own woman and to eventually become a leader. Let me take you back to the very start of the writing process. <clears throat> Excuse me. And and tell me what was what was the kernel of the idea? that sort of began the journey from, you know, banging heads with, with collaborators and, and it becoming a film? What, where was, what was the start of this idea for you? Well, the start of the idea for years, I was an actor in Los Angeles, and I guess it all starts around the 80s, back in the 80s. And for several years, I had talked about wanting to make a film. I wasn't sure what project, but I thought, you know, why don't you make your own film? And... I thought about doing a friend of mine though kept telling me this was back in the day when you didn't have digital, you had film. Most films, most movies were shot on film and it film was very, very expensive. And a friend of mine kept saying, well, you should do video. You should shoot on video. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that. It's flat and it does, doesn't look good. Well, after a number of years had passed, I realized, okay, I really, I turned, I was about to turn 30 and I thought I really want to do this. I've been talking about it for several years. I want to make a film. And I accepted the I, that my friend was right. And with my budget, and what the money that I had doing it on my own steam, I was going to have to shoot it on video. So then I thought, all right, what kind of movie would be conducive to video? And it occurred to me that possibly a superhero movie. If I did a superhero movie that looked like a comic book, the flatness of the video might lend itself to the flatness of the comic book page. And if I designed everything to look like a, comic book literally with boxes panels solid solid backgrounds i mean they're to the movie where they're at there's one location then you'll have a close-up of somebody and they're up against a red background or a blue background that whole thing and i thought that would lend itself to the video aesthetic plus at the time and this is the mid 90s now this is 90 this is 1994 where i finally december of 1994 where i decided okay this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna make this comic book superhero movie at that time, there weren't that many superhero movies. And most of the ones that were made were actually a bit on the campy side. It was a very popular thing in the 90s, not only to not only in superhero films, but actually in a lot of genres, to have the funny villain. I think because Batman made a lot of money and the Joker was funny, the idea was that everybody had to be funny. There was even uh, the the uh, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner. Alan Rickman is funny as the Sheriff of Nottingham. There was a Three Musketeers remake where Tim Curry played Cardinal Richelieu and Tim Curry was funny as Cardinal Richelieu. So that was a big thing. Yeah, there was that kind of fashion for the arch villain, wasn't there? Yes, and I wanted to get 
away from that. And I thought, okay, you know, nobody's done. I know that film is going to have, is going to be cheap. It's going to be low budget. It's going to have bad special effects. Maybe people aren't going to want to, it's going to be shot on video. But if I do this interesting comic book aesthetic, and if I do a more serious version of it, perhaps that will, uh, you know, that might work. Now, what's interesting is actually I start with a group of comedic villains. And what I kind of wanted to do, I wanted to also reflect the history. As I began to write the script, I wanted to reflect the history of comics where they started out more for kiddies and then they became more adult in their themes. That has kind of bit me a little bit on the butt. I've had some people feel like, oh, there's campiness at the beginning. And I guess if I were to write it now, it wouldn't have been. But as again, things really changed. I felt like it was... Um... In amongst the the campiness of the start is also a load of chaos. So you kind of get you're kind of bamboozled, and then as the film settles down, the other tone sort of makes itself but well, more known. Yeah. So that that's well, I'm glad you would say that, sir. That's how we designed it. You co-wrote this. Um, so what was the process there for you for you guys writing it with together, you and Blake Arnold? I wrote the first draft myself. I was actually going to get a friend who was better. I talked to a friend of mine who was a more experienced writer and he had to, he, we bounced some ideas and his name's Richard Becker. He ended up getting story credit, but he also had other projects that he was involved with. So things weren't progressing quickly enough. So I decided, okay, I'm just going to write, take over and write it myself. So I wrote the first draft and I showed it around to some friends. What do you think? And my friend Blake, who's a very experienced writer and very good, he, well, he was very useful and he gave me a lot of pointers. And then it was, we just ended up collaborating on the second draft of the script. And I learned a lot from him. What were the story issues that you were able to solve together that you were maybe struggling to solve on your own? Well, some of the dialogue was not all that great. There was a, um, there were, the characters didn't have enough individual voices the first time I wrote it as, as, a, as an inexperienced writer. And Blake helped me with that, giving everybody an experienced voice. For example, the um, there's a character, Sergeant Liberty. My original envision of Sergeant Liberty was more of just this gung ho guy who like the, the who just loved the army and had superpowers, and had super superhuman strength and invulnerability. And Blake had come up with the idea: well, what if he's actually from World War II and he has these World War II values? He's very old school values. He's got that kind of Captain America mentality, hasn't he? Exactly. Exactly. And he's one of the more, he has a, yeah, he a very moralistic character. Event, originally, my first draft, I had a lot of profanity. And Blake had pointed that, well, when you read comic books, you don't have a lot of profanity. And I had, I had actually done that with the idea of trying to make it seem like, well, to make the superheroes more, seem more real because they use four letter words. And, and I agreed with him. That was a better way to do it. It's because it's more true to the comic books if they don't swear. Cause when you, when you watch something like say Deadpool, the kind of R rating element of it really stands out as compared to the, your expectations of superhero dialogue, doesn't it? Yes. It, yeah, exactly. And you know, something else I took away from that experience even afterwards is I, a lot of times I find when you when you make the commitment that you're not going to use profanity, it does kind of force you to be more creative in your writing and your dialogue because you have to find another way. You don't have the shortcut. Hop in. I just went through this with Jeff. I just really want to be alone right now. 
I'll be okay. I'm actually not worried about you. It's me I'm worried about. <laughs> Cute, Sergeant Liberty. But I think you can take care of yourself. Okay, I'll tell you what. You walk home by yourself, I'll drive home by myself. Okay? Okay. Okay. You're not going very fast. Yeah, I'm trying to conserve gas. You must really want to save gas. I'm a superhero. I want to save everything. <laughs> you want to drive an all-lock? You're not going to give up, are you? Sergeant Liberty never gives up. So you, have to, you end up having to find a more interesting way to express yourself, express the same idea. At least that was my experience. That said, there are people who, like Quentin Tarantino, who deal in profanity the way other artists deal in clay. And yes, I'm stealing a line from A Christmas Story, but... I mean, one of the things that, that uh, you tackle head on, which is, which is proof that, A, the, the rules prove there are no rules is that, and, and I hinted at it before where I said there's like, a, there's, a, there's like a chaos to the start of the movie, is that you give us a whole list of characters to sort of comprehend and get our heads around. How, how, did you, how did you manage to sort of corral and wrestle that under control on the page? Because it's, it's at least a dozen, if not more, voices we're having to, we're having to sort of listen to in the first five to ten minutes. One of the things that we did in an earlier cut, I, we found right off the bat a, a lot of people got confused as to all the different characters. And so one of the things that we added in, we added, uh, there's a point at the be beginning of the movie over the comic pa panel where we have the heads of the heroes and the villains with their names underneath. And that was done to clarify things. And originally they're going to be, they were just going to be they were just going to be static heads. And then I, my editor, Dev Shores, had the idea of saying, well, why don't we have them be animated? Which concerned me for a moment. I said, okay, we'll give it a shot, but you may, have, you may do all that work for nothing because if it's distracting to the information going on in the middle of the screen, which was the film, we literally have the story going on while you, at one point where you have these heads of the heroes and villains with their names. But I ended up, I think, I don't think it is distracting. It's like that, it's like the opening page or two of a comic book where you sort of go, you get told something as well as the story begins at the same time. Exactly. And giving credit where credit due, that was actually the idea of Ed Yu, the actor who played Witch Doctor, one of the moguls of doom at the beginning of the end of the film. You and I, in uh, this is the first time we've spoken, but we, we kind of exist as as acquaintances on Facebook in Shadowland, uh, a genre group of, you know, fellow genre fans, I suppose. Um, and one of the guy, the guy that runs it, Jeff Stackhouse, is uh, is a really sweet guy, and he and he's always he's always bumping up my uh, links to the podcast and my shout outs to films that I like and stuff. So it was an absolute joy for me to see. Jeff playing Warlock. He was, and Jeff was fantastic. No, my friend, let her cry. Her sorrow is sweet music to me. Let them all cry! And pray to whatever gods they will. But no one can save you now. 
For the remainder of your insignificant lives, you shall rule this darkest of days when you had the supreme misfortune to cross paths with the Moguls of Doom! I'll, I'll tell you, he's been so... Uh, there are not, aren't enough things, to, good things to say about him, but one, one, a couple of things. Right at the beginning of the film, when we had auditions... Um, I mean, if I can give myself credit as a writer, I think I did a good job writing dialogue for Warlock. And we had several actors come in to, um, come in to read, and they were, all, they were all wonderful. They were all wonderful. They were like Almost everybody we had who read for that part was great. But Jeffrey brought this other aspect to it, even though Warlock is a bit arch and a bit over the top. I wrote him as a blowhard, and Jeffrey's opinion was like, no, no, no. It's He uses his magical, all of his words mean something. He gives all these great speeches to get an effect and to intimidate because he feeds magically off of the energy of the other, of, the, of, the, of his victims, of the people that are terrified of him. He wants to build the terror. That's why he gives these big speeches. And... I loved that because there, 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 there are different kinds of actors. There are very good actors who come and they give you everything that's on the page. And then there are actors like Jeffrey Stackhouse in the role of Warlock that bring you things that are not on the page. They do all this extra homework. He has tattoos and the tattoos were his idea. He has a magical bag. He actually went into these words that I had, the magical words, and he concentrated on the meaning he developed for himself the meaning of each one of those words now some of the some of it was there's some latin mixed in with just some nonsense words when i did the magical words but he gave meaning to all those words well it certainly pays off because it's as much as like you say it might if, if you were to transcribe it you'd go that's mumbo jumbo but when he's performing it and everyone's reacting to him performing it within the context of your movie it feels like that's what the character would do and the people respond to how they would to that character. Exactly. It's that one a great thing when an actor does their homework because even though you don't know that each one of those magic words means something, on some level you kind of do know it subconsciously because the actor knows it. What do you feel that you brought from your experiences of an actor who's been directed to the role of director talking to actors? What, what, we, what concessions or allowances were you able to make with your experience of an actor that you, that you think helped get, get the best performance you could from your actor? Well, that's a very good question. Part of it, it starts off with just realizing in the audition process and casting the right people to begin with. There, there was very little acting. There was very little direction that I needed to do every once in a while. It was like, okay, take something a little bit down or let's do another take or relax your hand, that kind of thing. Like a couple of times, a couple of actors I had to tell to relax their hand because it's this weird thing, but it just felt a little unnatural and they got it and it it worked fine. Uh, One of the things though that I did, I tried to encourage with the cast and the crew, both cast and crew, I tried to create, I wanted to create an environment. I hope I was successful. I think I was successful in this where there is no bad idea. Feel free to try anything. Um, yes, here's the script, but if you want to deviate from the script or go off it a little bit, feel free to do so. If you want to ad lib, feel free to do so. You have some crazy idea. There is no bad idea. I mean, even if it's an idea I don't like, it could be a springboard to something else. So everybody, everybody involved was encouraged to, you know, add their two cents in. 
and come up with, you know, if they had an idea, you know, I was totally open to it. I think that's, I think it's good. I think that that's a good, that I think you get some of the best work. In my experience, you get the best work out of actors when you give them room. But at the same time, you have to say, okay, that's, this this was great. This this is an interesting way to go, but that's not, we're going to not do it that way. And I think there's a way to talk to people too. For example, one of the, we had a character that was doing an accent that just wasn't working. And basically, rather than telling them that their accent wasn't working, I just said, you know, I'd rather do it without the accent because I see the character, I see the character being more neutral because and here's the thing it's not so much i didn't it's a i didn't want to hurt their feelings but b more important than that from a purely selfish point of view i didn't want to stifle them creative create creatively and sometimes you have to be careful because it can be very easy to stifle people there's a there's a sense on screen that this really is a comic book come to life um in a way you've got like a um i don't i don't i don't hopefully don't take this the wrong way but you know in the way that anyone that's familiar with creep show they're sort of opening the opening five minutes of creep show is is almost like that's the style of your film isn't it oh absolutely in fact on the closing credits we have on um, there's a special thanks and there was a special thanks given to george romero and stephen king because creep show was a definite oh that's all right well i mean it's a, a big long credit crawl but creep show is definitely i always try to acknowledge anyone and if somehow i forgot you know, I feel I feel bad. For example, we also credited a comic book writer. I also have a special thanks to a comic book writer named Roy Thomas because he had come up, he had written a story. There's a there's a superhero named Our Man who takes Myroclo pills. They're called Myroclo pills, and he has super strength and agility and speed for, well, not speed like a flash, but he's super yeah, super agility and super speed for an hour. And Roy Thomas, and this is a character from the 1940s, but Roy Thomas in the 80s came up with a storyline where he became addicted to his Myroclo pills. And now, you know, cause you've seen the film, we have one of the super, one of the villains is, a, is named speed trip. Who's a former superhero that had a super speed serum and became addicted to it. And he goes from taking a, you see in a flashback when he was a superhero, they would take the pill. And now as a supervillain, he's in, he's shooting up and injecting like a heroin addict. But that story was taken, I mean, that was inspired from Roy Thomas. I felt it was necessary to give him a thanks and uh, credit where credit is due. The scenes where you've got three heads it, behind different solid colours, so clearly like three panels, but they talk to each other almost like across the panels that we're looking at on screen. How, how, how did you formulate that? That mix, as it were. Well, a lot of it was shooting just shooting as you, on most films, you shoot different um, angles. And then it was just putting them together in the in the post process. I have to say somebody who really influenced me, and this, it was so disappointing because we shot the movie in actually way back in 2001. And we wrapped in 2002, but it took five years to get the post, to, to go through post. A year later after we shot, Ang Lee came out with all, with his Hulk movie, which also used the thing of paneling. And it was very disappointing, but because Ang Lee did that, it forced us to take the idea further. Like we weren't originally going to have comic book ads, but we, and we weren't originally going to have page turns, but now we added the hand turning the page, the child's hand turning the page at different points in the movie. We added the novelty ads. We have several shots of the movie where it goes Literally, we literally go out of the comic book to see the comic book on a table with a, a glass of milk and a plate of cookies. 
And part of that was because, well, Angley had done the idea. Originally, I was just going to do boxes and panels. And I realized, well, because that had been done, we had to step it up. Back in the 90s, we had Princess Bride, didn't we, with the grandfather reading the child a story, you know, and or even uh, Never Ending Story, the kid in the attic reading the book. It's sort of that interaction between the reader and the and the content is a, is a, is a useful narrative tool, isn't it? And, and it can also be used to, to advance the theme of the story. Like some of the points where we showed the kid because part of the part of the story at the same time fury is i mentioned at the beginning the main character fury she's the battered wife who's joined the team and she finds out that the leader of the team is abusive well we see some of his darker acts we see them from the point at different points in the movie when ace does something horrible there's a scene where he shoots a gang member and we see that from the point of view of the child reading the comic book this may sound pretentious but i wanted to give the idea of okay what are we showing our kids what are we showing people Oh, if I could, a couple of things I'd like to just address very quickly earlier. One of the other things I wanted to do, because I knew it would be confusing with so many superheroes and supervillains, and it's a lot, but I, at the time we started making the film, and in fact, this is still fairly true to this day in superhero movies, that the villains were always either they didn't have any superpowers. There's a mad scientist, an evil businessman, or it would be somebody, a villain who had the same power. Now, if you read a comic book, it's all kinds of different. No, people aren't, they're not all tied together with a common origin. Everybody has a different thing that they came from. And we tried to do that and to have a, a whole superhero world. I knew that would be confusing. So one of the things that we tried to do is keep the powers very basic. Like one character shoots energy beams. One character is superhuman strength. One character has magical powers. We have the character who's a vampire and... She could do a few things because we know vampires can do a few things. People know about vampires. But I tried to limit to one or two powers per person and things that would be very easy. So you 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 wrapped in 2001, did you say, 2002? And you were five years in post. So what what were the challenges there to keep to keep it go that make made it five years? It was a rough thing because when we made the film, as I mentioned, there weren't that many superhero films. And in fact, our, our fights were designed to move quickly because if you look at previous movies, like if you look at the Christopher Reeve Superman movies and even the first X-Men movie, the fights tended to be a bit slow. There was a lot of time taken to show the special effect. And our idea was like, well, since our special effects were going to be cheap anyway, we just boom, 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 just keep it going fast. But now, of course, now there's lots of superhero films and the action scenes are fast paced. So we kind of lost our window on that. <laughs> that was one of the things that's kind of a regret. And I, yeah, I don't want to say poor me or poor us, but it did take a number of years to do the post. And when we had started the film, there weren't that many superhero movies. By the time we had finished and then we pre premiered the film at um, San Diego Comic-Con International Film Festival in 2008, the superhero genre had, had picked up. And it was really beginning big time that summer. It was an industry by then, wasn't it? I suppose it was really just like winding itself up to hit us with 12 years straight of it. I'm, I'm counting. Oh, yeah. And it's definitely a challenge getting out there because people are kind of either oversaturated with the, the there's so much, there's so many, many films and television shows to choose from in the genre now. No, this is true. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely one of the people that, um, that got off the bus 
because he because I just couldn't stay on for that long. Oh yeah, well I love the stuff enough that I made one of the films, and I haven't seen everything. There's <laughs> just so much of it. With that long period, that that long gestation period leading to what did you say, two thousand eight premiere? Yeah, between those five years. Well, at one point I completely ran out of money because I don't know if I mentioned this, but it was the film's completely self-financed by myself, and I work as a singing waiter. So, <laughs> yeah, I do I do okay, but I don't don't make that much. And at one point I ran out of money. And I had to get a second waiting job to come up with cash for it. And for about a year, we were shut down while I was saving cash up. So in that, in, in, in that sense, what, what, what advice have you got for people about to embark on self-financed sort of low-budget feature films? Well, do it out of love. The chance that you'll get money back out of it, yeah, I'm not so sure. But... But I would I would say you want to make sure that you have room for for post production. Now I don't necessarily have regrets because I mean I could have waited and done it sooner. It would still I, if I would have waited to shoot until I had more money for post production, it would have taken just as long to finish it. I suppose it's like that expression they say about if you wait till you're ready to have children, you never have children, would you? Exactly. I would actually tell people to go out and do it. If it's your passion, you should do it. Um, cause it's, cause it's great. I will tell you, um, hopefully I have some success, success with the film. Hopefully it catches an audience, it catches on and finds an audience, but, uh, you know, but the thing is, even if it doesn't, I can say, I'll always be able to say I made a movie. When you talk about running out of money, is, is, is that because, is that because of unseen costs or because costs that you've foreseen were more than you than than you budgeted for. Yes, there were a couple of costs that were unforeseen. I tell you, Stuart, I come from a as an actor, I come from a theatrical background. And in the theater, when it's time to break for lunch, it's like, okay, everybody goes out and gets lunch, comes back, and we shoot. And I know this is this is going to. I mean, I can laugh at myself. This is unbelievably naive. And I invite anyone to say yes. What a dummy. That's my background. And very quickly, the first day of filming, I realized, no, I'm responsible for getting a meal for everybody. I mean, I had I had crap service table, but it's like I have to feed everybody every day. And so that did that was definitely an unexpected. I mean, that, that definitely several thousand dollars that I was not expecting. If you just had to concentrate on directing and, and obviously writing it in the first place, the producer would have had all a separate producer would have had all that. In hand, but because you were the one driving the bus as well, that was all coming. Oh out yes, of your... that was also the producer. It was all coming out of your head, wasn't it? All the responsibility, all the accountability was was down was was down to your experience and your understanding. So, you know, th- those kind of hiccups are. Well, I d- I had I had some help. There were there were days that I had help. There were days that I, I had my associate producers, Elder Jalakon and Jeffrey Stackhouse. Um, who, who played Warlock? We talked about Jeffrey earlier. Jeffrey, Jeffrey has been such a booster by the whole film. I mean, he's a cheerleader for me. He has kept me going when I was at my wit's end. I cannot say enough. I don't know that this film would have been completed without him. He is um, can't say enough good things about about this gentleman, who is an amazing writer, by the way. In addition, to being a great actor. In the lifetime of you getting this film to screen. There were times when you were ready to throw in the towel then. Oh, yes. It was, it was, well, you get discouraging. You, you definitely get discouraged. But there was a point where I, where I had given up. 
And after, I mean, after it was after the film, I played Comic-Con, won an award, but I wasn't getting in any, any festival play. And I literally wondered, well, you know, I like it, but maybe it's just not a good movie. So what's been the journey from, from 2008 premiere at Comic-Con to us now finally getting it on UK Amazon Prime? Where's the film been? After knocking on a few doors and being rejected by a number of film festivals, it, it, I just thought, okay, well, maybe the film stinks. Maybe the film just isn't any good. And I put it on, just put it on YouTube for anyone to see. And every once in a while, I would check on it to see if I was getting anything. And five years ago in 2015, I do a Google search for, you know, just a film. And I find an article that was on the Virgin site called The Seven Best Superhero Movies That You've Never Heard Of. And we were on that list. And in good company, I what did they say about your movie then that, that sort of got it on that list? What did what did they say qualified it? Well, they they mentioned that it's definitely it's it's definitely low budget, but it's a lot of fun. It's got all kinds of heart. It's uh, it's got the comic book paneling, and just a great story with great characters. And it was us. We were literally placed on a list with films that had the likes of Oliver Reed, Christopher Lee. Uh, Rob Lowe, Michael Crawford, Barbara Carrera, they were, you know, that's that's Alan Arkin, that's a pretty nice company. Woody Harrelson, very good company to be at. Condor Man made that list. Yes, uh, yeah, Condor Man did make that list. Rob, I saw Condor Man at the cinema when I was a kid. Stuart, how did you, did you like it? Of course I did, I was a kid. <laughs> well, when's the last time you saw it? Oh, God, when I was a kid. I mean, if who's not going to like bazookas coming out of the sidecar of a motorcycle we should all believe in ourselves but let's face it there's nothing quite like the an affirmation from a completely neutral source that made me say okay i'm gonna get it out there and right now it's on amazon prime both in the united states and the uk and the idea of and i'm planning to get it on to other other streaming services and possibly and hopefully if all goes well putting subtitles in and getting them in you know to other markets what's like a couple of your sort of happiest memories from the shoot there were so so many i had a um is it was part i guess having everybody just be there and be working together and making it happen i have to say a lot of times i was so focused and it was so much work that there wasn't so much register of emotion of just making sure things happened. I, I, one of the things I really, I guess one of the memories I really enjoyed, I enjoyed the frustrations and the challenges and trying to, trying to solve problems at the last minute. Do you remember an example where, where that kind of last minute solution sort of saved the day? Uh, yes. And one where I was just incredibly blessed or incredibly lucky, depending on how you put on it. We have a scene where we were doing a flashback scene and one of the actors didn't show up. And it's not because he was a flake. He just, he, there was a miscommunication. But um, the, actor, the actor didn't show up. So it was a sense of like, okay, what are we going to do? We had to quickly rewrite one of the scenes that he was in and just write him out of it. And that wasn't so tough. But, became, but what became really tough is there was a scene that we couldn't rewrite him in, out of, write him out of. It was a flashback scene. Um, if you see the movie, I don't know if this will mean anything to anyone listening to the podcast or hasn't seen the film, but there's a flashback where you see that uh, the Crusaders in an earlier, many years ago with a different lineup yes, of heroes had yeah. been captured by these villains. Mm -hmm. And one of them was the Crimson Archer, who's a black superhero, 
So basically, I called different people I know. Do you know anyone who's black who doesn't even have to be an actor who can just come down and, and possibly do this, be a body double? And, and I was lucky, to, very lucky to get somebody who, because as you know, somebody's white, they pretty much, there's some people are tan or, or but there's not, there's not that big a difference in skin tone where between black people, there, is a, there can be a huge difference in skin tone between being light-skinned and being dark-skinned. And we got very lucky with somebody who had the same, who had the same, who had, who had the same pigmentation, had the same skin color as dark skinned, like our actor, who was and who had a very slender build, like our actor. He was actually much shorter than our actor. Where our actor was a tall man, he was short, and he was like about fifteen years younger. And originally, we were going to have. I, I thought I was going to have close-ups of the different characters, of the of the superheroes. I don't have close-ups of them because, you know. <laughs> Because it was a different actor, but that it worked out really well. We got very lucky. That was a challenging time, but a very exciting time. And what's interesting is that we later we did need a close up of the actor, and we shot him like six months later. And I don't know if anybody will notice this, but there's a scene where my character is holding this superhero who had died, and you see my close up, which was shot on our last day of shooting. But then we had some, but then you see the Crimson Archer running into the frame. And this is six months later. And my hair is significantly shorter. We've mentioned, obviously, you're taking on the production responsibilities. You've, you've co-wrote it, you're directing it, and you're starring in it. So how, how did you find directing yourself as an actor? Weirdly enough, as an actor, I'm one of those actors like Jeffrey, where I always try to add in some extra things that weren't on the page. And I actually brought that up for better or for worse. There's a um, scene where he's tortured, is torturing somebody for, informa for information. And I didn't necessarily decide this when I was writing the script or even decide this as the director, but as the actor in that moment, I had made the decision that, you know, I think Ace really is kind of a, there's a little bit of perverse side of Ace that, that he, is, he, is a, he is a sadist. He's not just doing this information. There's a, he's actually twisted enough that he actually gets off on it. And it isn't so much that Ace is gay. Ace, later on, um, I use the torture scene. There's an actor. Ace, Ace has this chameleon device that changes his appearance. Hmm. And in the penultimate scene of the film, he confronts Fury, Fury confronts the Ace of Spades, and the Ace of Spades uses his chameleon device that changes his appearance to change into her husband. And her husband had looked at my, because we had shot that scene much earlier, and her husband, and I gave her the husband the torture scene to look at. So both times when Ace is being cruel and particularly sadistic, we also see that he's clearly getting off and there's an erotic aspect of it for him. And that was something I threw in as, a, as an actor. What new things or what discoveries did you make in the editing process that weren't evident, say, in the scripting of the, pro, of the film? Oh, well, there is a, yes, there is a... Um, I guess the best story that I can do about this, uh, the film ends with a, the film builds to a confrontation between Fury and the Ace of Spades, who's the leader of the Crusaders. And in that final battle, Fury confronts Ace. She has all these superpowers. Ace doesn't have powers, but he has gadgets, and he turns into her husband. And the psychological aspect of seeing her husband is too much for her. She is totally empowered, and he just starts beating her up. 
And then he tells her that he, um, you know, that basically gives her the speech where he just calmly, he, he caresses her and tells her that if she ever crosses him again, he'll go after everybody that she cares about. And he walks away and she tells him, as written, she tells him to stop and she gets up and she, he starts swinging at her like three different times. She ducks and then she punches him. And we found that just didn't work, man. That just, that just looked terrible. It was awful. It was awful. It just did not work. So what were we going to do? Well, what we did is, uh, the, what we came up with, for one thing, we also needed her to give her some more motivation to get up. So while her head, she's got her head down and we added all these shots, we took in several shots of Ace doing different horrible, atrocious, atrocious acts. And so that she would, uh, to jog her, so that she would have her justification to get up and realize, I can't, I've got to, even though I'm terrified, I've got to stop this man. So she does. That's part one. Part two was that we had Ace doing all these wild swinging at her and missing her. And that just, it didn't work. It didn't fit with the way Ace fights in the rest of the film. And we just realized it was, again, it was awful. And what we did is we just had her walking towards him. We, t we took a shot from the Moguls of Doom sequence at the beginning of the movie. In fact, there's a part where we're going to Jeffrey Stackhouse. Jeffrey Stackhouse throws a light, as Warlock throws a lightning bolt at Fury. Fury puts the puts a shield up that blocks the lightning bolt with her energy powers. Then she drops the shield and starts walking to him and says, you were saying? Well, we cut that part out because it just was too long. We needed the fight scene to move quicker. But we had that scene that said, you were saying. We decided to go to that fight. And rather than having Ace swinging wildly at her, we decided that she gets up, confronts him. And we took another scene where Ace fires a gun what we did was we took the shot from the beginning of the movie at a completely different location where Fury walks up to Warlock and says, you were saying? And we took that shot and we put it at the end of that. We removed the background and we put it into the background of that scene. And we had a great special effects artist that we got towards the end. We had three of them. Adam Lima joined us towards the end and he accomplished this. And he put Fury in the background. So... She tells Ace, you were saying, and she walks forward. And then we took a scene where Ace shoots his pistol, which was from a different part of the movie. It removed the background, and we put it into the background of the final scene. Then we went back to where Fury puts up her um, shield from the Warlock scene, and we put that shield up, and then we had bullets bouncing off of it. Then we had her put it down, and then we had her punch him. So that was completely changed from what we had originally had. See, I love this. Is what I love about doing the podcast is, that, is there's and and I think it's 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 what it's what everybody has to learn when making a film, and it's always worth trying to appreciate it before making a movie that that you genuinely do write a movie, shoot a movie, and edit a movie. It's uh, it's it's um, it's 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 not like I've invented this through talking on the podcast, but it is it is amazing to understand it because I can remember sort of ten, twelve years ago when I was sort of busy trying to get me head around how screenwriting worked or whatever and I'm thinking that's all I needed to do but actually that's just the start of a film getting made not not the end you know having a good having a strong script isn't isn't the answer it's just a good place to start exactly it's the, exactly the starting out point in fact one of the things and I feel bad about this but Brett Schefter who played Twilight he had a nice performance we, when we wrote the original script, we wanted to make sure that every, we wanted to give like lots of screen time to each one of the crusaders and develop their characters. 
but it turned out that, well, really, it's the story of Fury and her and her confrontation with the Ace of Spades. And there were several scenes where the character of Twilight, the magician, was there was a storyline where he's constantly pursuing Fury romantically and she's not interested, but he's constantly pursuing her. And the actor was wonderful, but we ended up getting rid of all those scenes because they just, you know, they dragged, they made the movie longer and slower than needed to be in it. You know, especially low budget films like ours, it needs to move. Let's tell people then when, when and how can they see the Crusaders? Currently you can see it on, you can see the Crusaders on, on Amazon Prime. So the full title people are looking for, it's, it's obviously it's a longer title than The Crusaders. Give people the full title of the movie. The Crusaders number 357, Experiment in Evil. Fantastic. Well, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Stuart, for having me. <laughs>